uh, as we begin this afternoon, take a moment, if you have been uh, really honoring the silence and sort of in seclusion within yourself, sort of break it now. Kind of open up and maybe look around a little bit, you know, kind of the, the internal and kind of remember that we're in community and we're in communication and come back into contact with each other a little bit. So we're going to spend these afternoon sessions uh, with a combination of lecture and discussion about Buddhism and recovery, and Dharma and recovery, uh, and also some small groups and some exercises and, and such. I'd like to start with a little bit of an overview of how Complementary, the Buddha's teachings and the 12-step tradition can be a lot of uh, similar principles, a lot of supportive, connected philosophies. Of course, both traditions encourage meditation. The 11th step, the seventh factor on the Eightfold Path, about meditating. Important part of recovery. Uh, spiritual practice and a meditative understanding. Uh, of course, both paths know the importance of compassionate action and service, generosity. Buddhism, it is often said that the Buddha's first teaching that he would give to people before teaching meditation is he would teach people about the importance of giving, of serving, and of being generous and sharing our resources and time and energy with each other. And of course, the 12-step tradition knows that very well. You have to be of service to others to get out of your own selfish, self-centered, self-destructive, perhaps, tendencies. So generosity as the antidote to self-centeredness in both traditions, universal principles. There's a lot of connection. Of course, there's a universal spiritual truth that the 12 steps tapped into that uh, Bill and Bob and the first 100 members and the Oxford Club and Carl Jung and whoever else they talked to about, you know, what we've experienced and how we're going to create this tradition and process, they tapped into a lot of universal 
spiritual understandings that are found in all religions. So, of course, they're found in Buddhism, too. Generosity and compassion, forgiveness and open-mindedness and honesty. It's the universal stuff that's found everywhere. Every religion has it. Every spiritual tradition, every... Every faith, every practice contains these core foundations of how we have to be kind to each other. <laughs> we have to keep an open mind, not get too stuck in our fixed views. We have to tell the truth. The recovery process, of course, begins with an admission of powerlessness. Whatever our addiction is, the first step, the first half of the first step, admitted we were powerless over blank. Alcohol, drugs, food, sex, debt, whatever it is, relationships, men, women. Admitted we were powerless over the substance. And that because of our relationship to that substance and our powerless over that experience, whatever it is, our life had become unmanageable. Right? Subtext. We'd created a whole bunch of suffering, experienced unmanageability, suffering, confusion, some level of a, a bottom of a... from our out-of-balance relationship to the alcohol, the drugs, the food, the sex, whatever it was, whatever it is, whatever it has been for us. It's so kind of, um, some people have a real difficult with this sort of uh, identification and the label, I am an alcoholic, or taking that on. I am an addict. Or a, a lot of people don't like that label. A lot of Buddhists don't like that label. A lot of people in recovery don't like the naming ourselves as that kind of too maybe solid of a what, identification with us. But there's also an incredibly liberating, normalizing effect, especially when you're in... Uh, Groups, recovery groups in what we call the rooms of recovery. We're all admitting, kind of normalizing. Oh, I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. Taking the stigma away from it. I think it's uh, somewhat connected to the Buddha starting his teachings. Right? First step, first noble truth. We're all suffering. We can stop lying about it. 
We can stop pretending like we're not. And the first noble truth, admission of your suffering. Acknowledging and admitting that your life is unmanageable. The first noble truth, right? You are suffering. There is dukkha, the Pali word for dissatisfaction and difficulty. So I think that there's a real connection here between uh, powerlessness and unmanageability as the 12-step tradition starts and as the Buddha starts his Four Noble Truths. First, let's just get honest. I've lost the ability to control my drinking or drugging or whatever it is I've become addicted to. That's just true. First noble truth, I'm suffering because of my attachment, aversion, misidentification. That's just true. No judgment. Normalizing statements. feels to me like uh, both to get into recovery or to start Buddhist practice takes some level of dissatisfaction, right? What we call a bottom. Some level of deep dissatisfaction to motivate us to start practicing to stop using. So suffering as the key motivating factor. Dissatisfaction. We have to be done. We have to be very dissatisfied with what we've been experiencing in order to make the change, in order to actually fully accept this first step, this first proposal. To really acknowledge the suffering. There's a really low success rate in Buddhism. The Buddha prophesied this from the beginning. He said, this spiritual practice business is really hard work. Everyone can do it. Very few are willing to do this hard work. Everyone has the capacity, capability, ability, but it's really hard work. He said, I think only a handful in each generation will be really willing to be uh, rebellious enough to meditate 
in a serious way, to be generous, kind, loving, forgiving, compassionate? He said, I think only a handful. 12-step programs have very low success rates. Lots of people come through the doors. Very few people have the willingness to do the incredibly hard work of recovery. It does say in how it works something about um, some people are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves or others. And that this is sort of a, if you can't be honest, you can't recover. I'm not, personally, not so sure about that. Seems true. I don't like can't. I don't like incapable. Uh, it might be true. I don't want it to be true, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't know the answer here. It doesn't make so much sense to me, actually. It makes much more sense to say everyone is capable. Everyone has the capacity. Most of us just aren't willing to do the really, really at times excruciatingly hard work of being honest and facing the ugly, painful truth about ourselves or about this world. I tend to lean towards the, uh, we all can do it. Anyone can do it. <clears throat> and one of the wonderful, wonderful things we have about uh, both the Dharma and uh, kind of Sangha community or fellowship is that there's all of these examples and this real ethic of like, well, uh, if I can, you can. And it's what the Buddha said repeatedly. If I can, so can you. He said, I'm just a dude. His words, not mine. <laughs> What's that in Paul? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a human being. I'm just a, a person. I'm not a god. I'm not... I, through my own effort, I meditated. I saw through the delusions that our minds make up, the cause of suffering, and I experienced the end of suffering. And if I can, so can you. Is the core of Buddha's teaching. Is the foundation of Buddha's teaching. Empowerment. Through personal, direct experience. And so we do that for each other. Right? When you get into recovery, there's all those people that have been there before you, and they say, I did it, here, let me give you a hand. Let me show you how to do it. And then you're there for a while, and other new people come in, and you, and you say, I did it, let me give you a hand. And it's passed on in this way, through personal relationships, personal experience. Us helping each other. 
showing each other. The wording of uh, the first step can be troubling to some people, powerlessness. Clearly what's being said is not that you're, it's not that we, not that I, am uh, powerless over alcohol, but I am powerless over the effect of alcohol once it's inside of my body. Then I lose control. As long as I don't put that alcohol in my body, we're cool. Right? Powerless over crack cocaine as soon as it melts on my glass pipe and turns to smoke in my lungs. As long as I don't smoke the crack cocaine, we're cool. I actually have some power over the crack as long as I don't pick it up. Once I pick it up, then the power to choose is gone. Is the... Uh, way I understand powerlessness. I believe it's the way it's presented. It's not the substance. It's what happens to us once that substance is ingested on one level or another. So, of course, unmanageability. And then, for people that have substance addictions or alcoholism, it's uh, quite simple. Abstinence. Not easy, <laughs> not easy for many. And as I say, these low success rates, a lot of people get sober, get off drugs, maintaining long-term recovery, sobriety, is uh, rare and precious. Lots of people start meditating, very few people continue or, uh, or, or take the meditative Buddhist path actually to the kind of liberation that the Buddha was offering. Very few. From a Buddhist perspective, uh, we're not powerless <clears throat> if we are paying attention. Right? The substances, yes, once they're in us, but the kind of we have some power over how we relate to our cravings, as you were even seeing here in meditation all morning. Right? That craving to move when you're sitting still, not so different than the craving than any craving, than all craving, of wanting it to be different than it is, of wanting to alleviate the discomfort that we're in. And we see in meditation, oh, I can learn to tolerate craving. I can learn to be with pain. I can renounce doing what my mind or body is telling me to do. If we're not paying attention, if we're not mindful, then from a Buddhist perspective anyways, we have almost no free will. 
It's mindfulness that brings choice. The 12 links of dependent origination are one of the ways that the Buddha taught about this. That in that moment of contact, when our consciousness and our senses contact pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, there is an almost immediate clinging to pleasant sensation, aversion to unpleasant sensation. There's an almost immediate craving that happens. If we're not paying attention, that craving is going to happen, and the reaching out and the grasping or the aversion is going to follow it. The satisfaction, the following that craving is going to unfold all by itself if we are not paying attention. Like it always did when we were drinking and using or participating in our addictions, right? The thought arose and the beer was opened. Immediately, because we weren't even really paying attention. Powerlessness, that thought arose and we did what our mind told us to. Such a revelation for me when I was incarcerated those 20 years ago and I started to meditate and I saw for the first time in my life, I don't have to do what my mind tells me to do. Meditation taught me that. Bringing attention to the breath, when my mind was saying all of this, when my emotions were dictating all of this fear and all of this desire and hatred and craving and terror and guilt and all of that happening inside of me. But with mindfulness, I could choose what I paid attention to. I didn't have to stay stuck and doing what my mind was telling me to do or feeling how my mind was telling me to feel. I hope you're seeing that. I hope you know this also. If you don't now, you will. If you continue to meditate, you will get this insight for yourself. And it's a liberating insight to know that we don't have to do what our minds tell us to. That we don't have to satisfy the cravings that arise both for addicts and non-addicts. This is the second noble truth of Buddhism. For all living beings, not just for us, uh, imbalanced into the level of addiction, but for all living beings. That craving and lack of wise relationship to craving is the cause of all human suffering. And it's definitely... an extreme example of us who uh, have become alcoholic or drug addicted or food addicted. So without mindfulness, we are totally powerless. We're going to keep doing the same conditioned, habitual pattern, which is 
satisfy whatever cravings you think you can get away with satisfying. <laughs> All right. And then even when we know we can't get away with satisfying it, continuing to do it. Even when we know we have some uh, what does it say? Self-knowledge avails us nothing. Just knowing that we shouldn't drink isn't enough. Just knowing that there has to be a deeper level of wisdom, of insight, of spiritual transformation is necessary. The second step talks about um, getting some faith some maybe confidence coming to believe. And of course, the 12-step tradition and uh, those nice old guys that were creating the program looked for the spirit. They, they realized it's a spiritual process that is necessary and the language that was available to them and the uh, perspective that was available to them, whatever, was it 70 years ago? How long? Somebody know? 30s. Way back in the day? <laughs> 75 years ago? 1935. So, yeah, 73. The language and the information and the religion and spiritual was very Western, Judeo Christian. That was the only uh, kind of concept and language available. To them, I think that's an important context. Um, and so, for them, you know, for the 12 step programs originally, God, a concept of God as a spiritual power, a higher power to restore us to sanity. Now, I'm going to talk quite a bit maybe this week about God and Buddhism and higher power and stuff. But I think it's important for me to put in context um, because they tried so hard to be open-minded. Right? With uh, the tools that they had, they tried so hard to say, God, as you understand Him, and everyone can kind of have their own higher power as long as it's the creator of the universe. <laughs> as long as it's a white male God, you can believe whatever you want. <laughs> You know, and of course they don't say that, but in the big book there's lots of such uh, clear Judeo-Christian uh, kind of God of Abraham type of language. That for me it's just important to know they didn't really know better. Actually, I very much believe that if Bill and Bob and these hundred people that wrote the big book had been uh, introduced to more than just the Judeo-Christian religiosity, I think that there, the book would have been much different than it is. I think that they were very open-minded within the small context uh, that they were uh, introduced to. They really wanted people to say, it can be anything you want. They just didn't have the language. They didn't know about Buddha nature. They didn't know about the Dharma. Very few Americans did in the 30s. 
very few Euro, European and you know, uh, Caucasians did. They didn't know about it. So they came from a very Western religious perspective and they said, God, as you understand us, restore you to sanity. Restore us to sanity. It's problematic for many Buddhist-oriented people. The big G word. A couple people said last night, uh, God kept them out of the rooms of recovery until maybe they read some books that uh, showed them that you don't have to have the kind of God contact in order to recover. I didn't really. Some of you found that out in my books. Kevin did a good job of opening it up in, in one breath at a time. Buddhist perspective. What's key here for me and totally connected to Buddhism is that after the Buddha was enlightened, he said, uh, and he reflected on, how did I get here? <laughs> Just like, you know, the Bill and Bob were like, well, how did we get sober and stay sober? Well, okay, we admitted we were powerless and life is unmanageable, and then we came to have some faith in, in, in God in their case. The Buddha also said, how did I get here? He said, first, I was dissatisfied with the status quo. Then I had some faith, some confidence that a spiritual transformation was possible, that I could be restored to sanity, we could say. The first factor, there's a teaching, a list in the Pali Suttas called the five uh, spiritual faculties, or the five powers, and it begins with faith, sometimes translated as confidence. But the Buddha said, first and foremost, I had to believe that it was possible or I never would have tried. I had to have some confidence or I never would have done all of the meditation that I did and the yoga that I did and the prayers and inventories. And I had to have some confidence that it was possible. I had to come to believe that a spiritual liberation, that Nibbana, Nirvana, was attainable. And he said, I had that confidence first, then I worked my ass off, effort, and I trained in mindfulness and concentration and wisdom and compassion. But that faith, that second step, also the second step for the Buddha. Also the second step in Buddhism. Sometimes the first step, right? That confidence, that faith. Like all of you, right? You're here on some level because you have some faith some confidence that this is a worthy undertaking to meditate. From direct experience, from somebody who inspired you. The Buddha, it was a person inspired him. He saw a wandering monk. And a lot of us get this experience with confidence when we read a book or if we see the Dalai Lama on television or something and we're like, he has what I want. Right? Or we read a book and we're like, oh, this is, you know, makes sense, it inspires me, it gives me some confidence and faith. So that second step is right here in, in Buddhism also. Of course, Buddhism does not uh, attribute it to uh, an external higher power. Again, this can be very problematic. 
And my own experience with it was that when I was ready to, to really work the steps, I went to some of my uh, Buddhist friends and my father, the teacher, and my therapist, who was Buddhist-minded at the time. And I said, you know, what about this higher power business? I'd already been meditating a bit. And they said, well, they tried to give me the Buddhist answer. Well, it's more like an inner power. It's, you know, it's inside of you. You have Buddha nature, all of this stuff. And it just didn't work for me, that philosophy, at the time. Because I'd been meditating for a while, and they're saying, you're telling me there's an inner power, Buddha nature? I watch my mind. It's disgusting. <laughs> right? I've been meditating. I've been looking inside here, and there's nothing that looks very wholesome yet. There's nothing that looks very spiritual or powerful yet. I have seen this power of paying attention, but mostly what I've seen is anger and fear and shame and pain. So the internal power um, as a philosophy for newly recovering people doesn't work so well a lot of the time. In my case, it didn't. Sometimes maybe it does work. In my case, it didn't. I was actually totally resistant to an external higher power. It didn't make that much sense to me. But because I was pretty sure it wasn't in here, what the hell, I might as well look for it out there. And just that act of confidence and faith and praying and saying, uh, you know, God, higher power, whatever, I don't believe in you, but please help me. Right? Just that asking for help, such a relief. The act of humility. You know, this is kind of borderline two, third step, you know, making that decision and asking for help. The act of asking, the act of humility, of saying, it's not my conscious. Mind, that's for sure. I have made a mess of this life. Trying to control, letting go of control. Asking for help. is a very powerful tool. Whether it's true or not from an ultimate perspective, the action of it, incredibly powerful. Prayer, turning it over. Of course, in Buddhism, uh, it's not so different, right? In, in the 12th step, you know, you can boil that uh, third step experience down to uh, let go, let God. Some way? Third step? Let go, let God. Buddhism, constantly, same message, let go. Buddhism foregoes the uh, assignment of let go to a higher power, but just a constant message that Buddha over and over, let go. It's the clinging that's the problem. Let go, let go, let go. So the um, assignment of who we let go to, or what we let go to, Buddhism, we could say, let go, let impermanence do its work, right? 
Stop holding on to this impermanent stuff. You're causing rope burns for yourself. Right? Whatever you're holding on to uh, is being pulled beyond your grasp, and it's hurting you. So let go. It took me quite a while to come to... Uh, it was, so in my experience, it was very helpful to pray, to uh, that kind of open-mindedness that the recovery programs talk about. You don't have to know what God is, just have an open mind, just you know, fake it till you make it. Just even a, a crack in the door of willingness is enough, the big book says. That was my experience. I, you know, I was, wasn't convinced, I didn't know, uh, but I was just willing, and just the act of prayer, of turning it over. Very liberating to let go. What a relief. What a relief. To not be holding on so tightly and in such a strong delusion of I'm in control of everything. What kind of bullshit is that? Of course we're not in control of everything. Buddhism is considered a non-theistic spiritual tradition. There's no creator, there's no permanent creator entity in Buddhism. There's no higher, higher power of, of such. The Buddha was really clear that I'm not your higher power. <laughs> he wouldn't let people make him his higher power. Uh, more like I said, more like I'm your sponsor. Right? I'm not your higher power, but I will guide you in how to find your liberation for yourself. I'll guide you. You have to work the steps. You have to practice the eightfold path. Faith in me won't train your mind in meditation. It's kind of the way the Buddha puts it. But I will be a, a spiritual friend to you that will show you what's possible, that will guide you in how you can do your practice. There is gods in Buddhism. There are, I guess we could say higher powers. The only thing about the higher powers in Buddhism is that pretty much the Buddha said, you know, they're suffering just about as much as you are. So they may not be the best resource for you. Because there's even this sort of a Brahma, the creator, what we would call a, a higher power in Buddhism, comes to the Buddha and encourages him to teach the Dharma after his enlightenment. Some would say this is just psychological analogy for his own uh, wisdom mind. But some would really take it seriously and say that in the Buddhist cosmology there's this God that comes and Buddha has this spiritual kind of almost theistic looking experience. 
But then later in the suttas, the Buddha has to go into the heaven realms and teach Brahma about non-attachment. Because Brahma, kind of like our Western concept, or the biblical concept of this sort of theism, right? this wrathful, judgmental, jealous God, Brahma's a little bit like that in Buddhism too. And so finally, Buddha goes to God and says, you don't have to suffer so much, it's not necessary. Jealousy? How's that feel? Wrath? Revenge? Because God in this kind of is attributed these very human emotions, like pretty much all theistic concepts are made in the likeness of man, <laughs> of humans. So I wouldn't say that Buddhism is atheistic. It's not against. It's just non. It sort of stays out of the God conversation and says, you can do it. You need to pray. You need to meditate. And so what this experience has meant to me over my years, 20 years of practice and recovery, is that a higher power that I have come to believe in, faith in, direct, verified faith, and the willingness to turn my will and my life over to this power is the power of practice. Is the faith without works is dead, but the works, the action, is incredibly transformative, a power way greater than myself, a higher power. We could call it the Dharma, the teachings and the practices and the truth that is actually, ultimately, within each one of us. Without a lot of hard work, it's uh, impossible to access that truth. Without a lot of prayer and meditation and service and generosity and compassion and forgiveness, and without working really hard, uh, as my early experience was, you just don't see it. It's buried under a lot of attachment and aversion and habitual patterns of clinging. But that in the long run, the sort of shooting way forward, right? The twelfth step, having had a spiritual awakening. When we have that spiritual <coughs> awakening, then we see Oh, it was here the whole time. I just couldn't see it before. I didn't gain something. I didn't create something. I uncovered something from within. Is the Buddhist perspective, is the Buddha's teachings and experience. It feels a little bit like, to me, sometimes like... Um, there is a place, I don't know exactly what sutta it is, um, but this sort of rareness and preciousness of, uh, 
of being willing to do the hard work and, and really hearing the Dharma and it resonating with you is true. It's pretty rare. Somewhere in the suttas where the Buddha says, you know, this is just for uh, those who have little dust in their eyes. This is just for people in the human realm. The Dharma is really only attainable by people who are kind of um, well on their way in the kind of evolution of things and the karmic momentum of things, which puts all of us in that category on some level or another. I feel like for me, one of the reasons, there's also in Buddhism these different cosmologies, um, that we're in the human realm when we're pretty balanced. When we're really imbalanced, when we're stuck in constant craving, uh, in addiction, when we're really in active addiction, uh, there's a state of being, state of mind, that the Buddha describes as a ghost realm, as the realm of hungry ghosts of constant craving and no satisfaction, <coughs> constant suffering. To me, that is my experience of addiction. And it's thought, for the most part, that hungry ghosts can't practice the Dharma. They can't, because they're suffering too much, understand that, hungry, that, that, that when we're in that, that we have Buddha nature. That there is a, a higher potential within us. Because the craving is so overwhelming, that's all we see. And if you're with me with this analogy, my feeling is, is that the 12 steps and an externalized higher power concept are the perfect ladder out of the hungry ghost realm. That when we're in that kind of state of we need an externalized higher power. Almost all of us need, and it's such a brilliant concept to say, like, you're really screwed up. You need somebody to help you. Look what you've done to your life. Look what's happened. My experience was it was through the 12 steps. Even though I'd been doing Dharma practice, through the 12 steps of turning it over and, and praying to whatever, that I exited the hell realms, the hungry ghost realms, and finally became human. And it's here, as a human being, that we can really do the dharma, uncovering that truth from within us. I don't know if this makes sense to you, if, if it, uh, and not even that you have to agree with it or not. Really, this is just some of my experience, perspective. It's a great thing about perspectives, right, is that they're always changing. Five years ago, I would have said something totally different <laughs> than today. And I'm well aware, as I say this in a very confident way, as though it's the truth, that five years from now, I'm sure I'll think something else altogether. So please take it on that kind of level. And what's most important is that you uh, trust, that each of us trusts and finds out for ourselves what's true about powerlessness and unmanageability, about higher powers, and about transformation.
we're going to have a lot more time for some conversations about this and for uh, speaking about uh, higher powers and, and the step process and powerlessness. But right now, before we get into too much conversation or debate, or what I would like you to do is to reflect on your own experience and story. What was it like for you to get to the point of willingness to admit you were powerless? Which means your story, your bottom. How much suffering did it take to admit you were powerless? That your life was unmanageable. And how did you come? How are you coming? How has your concept of being restored to sanity by a higher power, how did that happen for you? How has it evolved? Right. Uh, what I want you to do is I want you to tell your story what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now to someone else in this room. It's a powerful process of uh, sharing, of admission, of telling the truth. And this is a safe place to do it. You won't be judged. You're going to be talking to someone else that has been just as confused as you have been who has suffered just as much as you have suffered, maybe in their own way, and the stories are different. But knowing that this is a sacred ceremony, this is an, an ancient 12-step ceremony, an ancient Buddhist ceremony, I was going to have you break into um, your small groups, but I'm not even going to do that. Just pick someone that's not in your small group, now, please, somebody next to you, somebody that's not in your small group, and that's not your homie, somebody that you don't know so well, a stranger. Actually, staff, why don't you guys do it together, just so that the participants, and you guys are welcome to do it if you want, you don't have to, but yeah, and you can turn this on. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.